Good morning, church. Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to this time of worship at Faith Community United Methodist Church. It's good to be with you this morning, and welcome to those worshiping with us online as well. We're glad that you have joined us and pray that we will all be blessed in this time of worship. If you haven't already signed the attendance pads, I would ask you to find those in the pews and fill them out and pass them along to others. And just a reminder that the first Sunday of the month is Communion Sunday, and we, we are still using these uh, prepackaged kits that are on the table in the narthex. So if you forgot to grab one on your way in, you can feel free to just go out and, and get one of these so that you have that uh, for our time of communion at the end of the service. And if you're worshiping at home, 
uh, be sure to, to gather together some bread and some juice so that you can join us in the sacrament as well. We come together to worship our God, and so let us be in, an, in a mind of worship, and I invite you to stand as you're able for the call to worship. Blessed are those who trust in God, who delight to meditate on God's law. We long to hear the word of God and let the word shape our lives. Blessed are all who seek the realm of God, who hunger to find meaning in their lives. We intend to give our best to our Creator, bearing fruit in all we say and do. Blessed are the ones who serve God with joy who risk all they have in faithfulness and hope. We come now to worship and find new life to receive healing and empowerment for our journey. Please remain standing for hymn number 103, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Join me in our opening prayer. O God, whose presence fills this place of gathering, we bow before your majesty in awe and wonder. 
when we consider the vast universe of your dominion, we are humbled by your attention to us. Your steadfast love and faithfulness amaze us. Your care for the lovely gives us a sense of our own dignity and worth. Send your gospel to teach us, to save us from ourselves, to lead us into all truth. Show us the tasks we can accomplish for you and grant us the courage to reach out in your name to do them. Amen. Please be seated. Return in your hymnal. Number 526, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Lord, what a privilege it is indeed to be able to 
come into this place, to be able to come into your presence, no matter where we are or what is going on, to know that you are there and to be able to bring all of our cares, all of our worries, all of our griefs to you, to lay them all at your feet, trusting you with all things. And so, Lord, we lift up to you all of our concerns for loved ones, for family and friends, for neighbors who are going through struggles. We pray for your mercy. We pray for your healing. We ask for your compassion and your peace to shine in each of their lives. And, Lord, may we see your glory at work, your glory revealed through answered prayers, through blessings and miracles before our very eyes. Lord, we pray for this community. We pray for our country. We pray for this world. We thank you for those who offer of themselves to to serve and to protect us, for law enforcement, for emergency medical workers, for those who put themselves in danger day in and day out to help others and to serve us. We pray for your protection upon them, for your strengthening of them in their work. We pray for our leaders, that you would give them wisdom and insight, that you would give them health and strength. And we pray for each one of us that we would continue to be your faithful servants, following wherever you may lead. Work through us and through this congregation to reveal your glory and to build your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name as we offer to you now the prayer that he teaches us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now we have the opportunity to continue worshiping God through the giving of our tithes and our offerings as the ushers wait upon us.
Please join me in the prayer of dedication. Thank you, God, for the consolation you offer, the hunger you satisfy, and the healing you produce in those who respond to your love. You have touched our lives in so many ways that make us rich. Now use what we have shared to provide fulfillment in other lives, among our neighbors near and far. Enlist our best efforts in the extension of your realm, that our offering of ourselves may bear fruit daily. Amen. Please be seated. The scripture lesson is from the book of Daniel, chapter 4, verses 19 through 27. You'll find it in your bulletin. Then Daniel, who is called Belshazzar, was severely distressed for a while. His thoughts terrified him. The king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or the interpretation terrify you. Belshazzar answered, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree that you saw, which grew great and strong, so that its top reached to the heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which provided food for all, under which animals of the field lived, and in whose branches the birds of the air had nests. It is you, O king. You have grown great and strong. Your greatness has increased and reaches to the heaven and your sovereignty to the ends of the earth. And whereas the king saw a holy watcher coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the ground with a band of iron and bronze in the grass of the field, and let him be bathed with the dew of heaven, and let us lot and let his lot be with the animals of the field, until seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O King, and it is a decree of the Most High that has come upon my Lord the King. You shall be driven away from human society, and your dwelling shall be with the wild animals. You shall be made to eat grass like oxen. You shall be bathed with the dew of heaven. And seven times shall pass over you until you have learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and it gives it to whom he will. And it was commanded to leave the stump and roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be reestablished for you from the time that you learn that heaven is sovereign. Therefore, O king, may my counsel be acceptable to you. Atone for your sins with righteousness and your iniquities with mercy to the oppressed so that your prosperity may be prolonged. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
when I was a kid, my grandparents lived in the parsonage of a large United Methodist retirement home in Cincinnati, where my grandfather was the chaplain and head administrator. The house is no longer there, unfortunately, but I, I remember it clearly. There was a private road that wound down a large hill with their driveway turning off right at the bottom of the hill. And one of the, the favorite things for my brother and I to do there was to take turns riding a red radio flyer wagon down that hill. And when you got to the bottom of the hill, winding one way, and then you turned the other way into the driveway, you could really get some G-forces going. So this one time, my brother and I got the bright idea to go down the hill in the wagon together. We figured that with both of us in the wagon, we could really get some speed going. I should mention that my brother is two years older than me, so this is all his fault. He was in the front so that he could steer, and we did get some tremendous speed going down that hill. And about halfway down, I was so thrilled with the ride that I began to yell out, Geronim! I was trying to yell Geronimo, but I didn't get to the last O, because as soon as my brother turned the wagon to go into the driveway, our momentum was such that the wagon just went toppling over, and we were both thrown across the blacktop. It's not the accident itself that I remember most clearly about that ill-fated ride. What always has stuck in my mind was that moment of me yelling, Geronimo, in the height of joyful pride, and how that joyful pride came crumbling down in a moment, turned into humiliating pain before I could even finish getting the word out of my mouth. What brings that to mind today is a little piece from Daniel chapter 4, which occurs just after our scripture reading for today. King Nebuchadnezzar was boasting about the magnificent kingdom that he had built, going on about my mighty power and my glorious majesty. And then in verse 31, it begins, while the words were still in the king's mouth. While the words were still in the king's mouth, he, he didn't even get to finish his boast. He didn't even get to the end of the sentence before a voice came from heaven declaring that the prophecy against him would be fulfilled. And then verse 33, immediately, immediately the sentence was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. His joyful boast was turned to shameful humiliation before the words were even finished coming out of his mouth. But what sentence was this? What, what was the prophecy that had been spoken against him? For that, we have to back up quite a ways. In, in the scriptures, we only have to go back to the beginning of the chapter. But in time, we are backing up a whole year. A, a whole year passes in verse 29, between the time that the dream was given and interpreted and the time when it finally came to pass. So when we back up to the beginning of the chapter, we're going back a year in time. Chapter 4 begins as a letter or, or a public proclamation sent from King Nebuchadnezzar to all the peoples, nations, and languages that live throughout the earth. King Nebuchadnezzar himself wanted all the world to hear this story. Which is pretty remarkable when you consider that this story does not paint him in a favorable light at all. Perhaps he had finally learned that trying to paint himself in a favorable light was what kept getting him into trouble. And it was time instead to give glory to God. His story begins like this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, 
was living at ease in my home and prospering in my palace. Sounds pretty good, right? Sounds like what many of us aspire to. Maybe not the palace part, we're, we're not royalty, we don't have the largest kingdom in the world at our disposal, but we have our own little kingdoms and our own little palaces that we like to enjoy, to sit comfortably at home and know that we have all that we could possibly want from this world and that we are in control. That's it. That's the goal of this game that we're playing, isn't it? The king had won the game. He, he was the ruler of his own life, and the fact that he ruled the lives of everyone else around him, well, that didn't hurt much either. But then he had a dream. This dream troubled his mind. We've heard this before, haven't we? A, a dream which troubled the king is what set the context of Daniel chapter 2. And at first you might even think that, that you're listening to a retelling of the same story from chapter 2, this time told from the king's perspective. But there are some things that don't line up with that. The king says that he told the dream to the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. In chapter, in chapter 2, he refused to tell them the dream. He, he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. Is the king maybe changing the detail, that detail and retelling the story so many years later? When all the others all fail to discern the meaning of the dream, Daniel comes in, just as he had in chapter 2, when the king had threatened to kill all of them, was the king leaving that detail out too? But then the, the king tells Daniel his dream, and as soon as he does, it becomes clear this is a completely different dream. This is not a retelling of chapter 2. This is a whole new event which took place years later. How many years, we don't know, but we saw last week in chapter 3 that, that chapter 3 happened years after chapter 2, perhaps close to two decades later. And this dream comes after that. So Daniel has been in the king's court for a couple decades now. They know each other well. Nebuchadnezzar knows he can trust what Daniel tells him about this dream because they've been through this before. The king shares his dream with Daniel, a dream about a tree standing at the center of the earth with its top stretching into heaven. It's worth mentioning again that Babylon was the location of the Tower of Babel from Genesis. In chapter 1, Daniel even used the, that ancient name Shinar, which was used in Genesis 11 as the location of the Tower of Babel, a place where the ancient pagans had attempted to build a tower reaching into the heavens. Now, a couple millennia later, in that same city, a pagan king who has built the largest kingdom in the world, dreams of a tree with its top stretching into heaven. It's no coincidence that the king's hubris turns out to be the subject of this dream. The tree was full and beautiful, it's the fruit on it abundant, and all the creatures of the earth lived under or in the tree, gaining their security and their sustenance from it. But then a voice from heaven a holy watcher is what Nebuchadnezzar calls him, cried out that, that the tree was to be cut down and the stump of the tree bound with a band of iron and bronze. And this is where the dream gets really weird. Still talking about the stump of a great tree, the holy watcher then says, 
Let him be bathed with the dew of heaven, and let his lot be with the animals of the field and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a human, and let the mind of an animal be given to him. Now, if you're trying to picture this dream, you might wonder, wait a minute, when did the tree stump become a human? But if you think about your own dreams, it makes a little more sense. I know that I have dreams where one thing changes into another, and then into another, and Somehow it all still makes sense. One minute I'm playing with a toy car and the next minute I'm sitting inside that car driving it. And, and the next thing I know I'm on a bus or, or in a plane. But it's all the same dream and somehow it all means the same thing. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the tree stump becomes a man and the man takes on the mind of a beast. But it's the same dream and somehow it all means the same thing. Daniel knows what it means. As soon as he heard it, Daniel knew what it meant. My Lord, Daniel says, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Now let's consider that statement for a moment. Keep in mind that Nebuchadnezzar was no kind-hearted, benevolent king who always did what was right by his subjects. The picture he had in his dream of this tree under which all of creation was living peaceful and happy That was an idyllic picture of what Nebuchadnezzar wanted to believe of his kingdom, but the true picture was much different when viewed by those at the bottom of the tree rather than the one at the top. 2 Kings 25 and Jeremiah 52 talk about the terror that Nebuchadnezzar visited upon those whom he conquered. After capturing King Zedekiah of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar slaughtered Zedekiah's sons right in front of his eyes and then had Zedekiah's eyes put out. He cut into pieces the vessels of bronze and gold that remained in the temple, and then he had the temple burned to the ground. He personally killed the high priest and the second priest and at least 70 other men who were brought to him from the temple. Nebuchadnezzar was no peace-loving man. Yes, many of the exiles, such as Daniel and his friends, were given positions of authority by King Nebuchadnezzar, but the fact that he had praised them in the past did not mean that they were safe from him in the present or in the future. He had killed his own high-ranking officials before. Think just about chapter 2 when he was ready to kill all of the soothsayers, enchanters, and diviners in the kingdom because they displeased him. That's the kind of man he was. The officials living under Nebuchadnezzar always knew that he could turn on them in a moment and that they they were always just a hair's breadth away from being killed. And if that's true of the officials, the ones that he knew and liked, imagine what it was like for the common people, the thousands of unnamed exiles who lived in his domain, the ones who he had no care for at all. They were without a doubt a dominated and an oppressed people. The last verse of Psalm 137 expresses how the Jewish people felt living in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. That's a far cry from the contented animals living happily under the shade of a glorious tree. Nebuchadnezzar was, in fact, a tyrant. And as most tyrants are, he was blind to or completely unconcerned with the impact of his tyrant tyranny on all of the thousands of little people who didn't matter one bit. That's important to understand when we listen to Daniel's response to the king's dream. The first thing he said, I've already quoted, 
My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. This statement can be taken in two ways, and I believe Daniel means both. On the one hand, he's terrified of the dream because he's afraid of the king. He knows that if the king doesn't like what Daniel has to say, he can easily have Daniel killed. But fear is not the main reason that Daniel is disturbed by this dream. Daniel knows that God has protected him thus far. He knows that God preserved his three friends in the fiery furnace. He knows that God will continue to be with him. There's another reason Daniel is disturbed by this dream that has nothing to do with fear for his own safety. Daniel was actually truthfully concerned about the king. He really didn't want this punishment to happen. He wasn't just flattering Nebuchadnezzar in order to protect his own hide. He actually meant what he said. He was concerned for Nebuchadnezzar. This tyrant of a ruler who murdered and oppressed Daniel's people and who continued to exalt himself over God, despite the kind of ruler Nebuchadnezzar was, Daniel did not want to see any harm come to him. Why? Well, remember what the prophet Jeremiah told God's people as they were being taken away into captivity. He said, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Through the words of the prophet, God had commanded his people to pray for Babylon and for its rulers for their peace and prosperity. Because God was still sovereign. As pagan as Nebuchadnezzar was, he was still a tool of God, carrying out God's purpose. He would not have been in the position he was in had God not placed him there. He would not have had the power that he had if God had not given it into his hands. Just as Jesus said to Pontius Pilate when Pilate was prepared to crucify him, you would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Daniel understood this. And so he had faithfully been praying for the prosperity of Babylon and for the health and success of the king ever since he had been taken into exile. Every day for roughly two decades, he had been praying for this king. He had been praying so earnestly and so faithfully for this king that the very idea of something bad happening to him disturbed Daniel. Do you pray that earnestly and faithfully for our leaders? Even for the ones you didn't vote for and wouldn't vote for? Even for the ones that you consider bad? Even the ones that you have painted as the enemy? Do you realize that the sovereign God most high has placed them where they are and has commanded us to pray for their good? I have to wonder if our society, if our country wouldn't be better off, if we wouldn't be a little more civil to one another, a little more godly as a people and as a nation, if all we Christians actually did this the way that God commands the way that Daniel did. If instead of praying for the leaders that we agree with and wishing ill on the ones we don't, even speaking curses of them, we actually prayed for them, all of them, 
The ones we like and the ones we don't. The ones we want to follow and the ones we think are fools. God is sovereign over all. And God commands us to pray for them all. For their health, for their peace, for prosperity. Let me tell you this. If they had had elections back in the the days of Daniel, they didn't, but if they had, I can guarantee you that Daniel would not have cast his ballot for Nebuchadnezzar. But he prayed for him. He prayed for him faithfully according to God's command every day, and that made a difference. It made such a difference that Daniel was distressed at the very thought of something bad happening to Nebuchadnezzar. We need to consider that example and learn from that example and follow that example today. I also want us to consider the last thing that Daniel said to the king after giving the interpretation how the king would be struck with an illness of the mind and that that would cause him to live like an animal, but that the kingdom would be preserved for him and restored to him once he had learned that the Lord Most High is sovereign over every kingdom. After telling him all of this, Daniel gives the king some advice. Atone for your sins with righteousness and your iniquities with mercy to the oppressed so that your prosperity may be prolonged. Daniel was calling the king to repentance, suggesting that if the king repents, perhaps the verdict issued in the dream can be averted. But notice that Daniel does not tell the king to repent just by humbling himself and acknowledging God's greatness. He he doesn't just call the king to a change of heart. He calls him to change his entire way of being king. He, He doesn't tell him, acknowledge that the God of the Jews is the one true God and then go about running the kingdom however you see fit. No, he he tells the king to repent by showing mercy to the oppressed. Daniel understood what the faithful people of God have always understood, that faith without works is dead. That you cannot claim to love God whom you have not seen if you do not love your brother and sister who you can see. The king could not simply change his system of belief and his attitude toward himself and God and think that that is all it takes. Putting God first means working for justice for all people. For the king to truly repent, he would have to entirely change the kind of king he was. He would have to lift up those he had been oppressing. He would have to show mercy to those whom he had always deemed as unimportant. He would have to become a righteous king, a man honoring God, not just in his words, but in his benevolence toward every person over whom God had given him authority. If he could do this, if he could do this, then perhaps, according to Daniel, perhaps this harsh judgment against him could be averted. There's no mention in the book of Daniel how the king responded to Daniel's interpretation or his words of advice. Daniel stops speaking, and the next thing you know, it's a year later. I have to believe that Nebuchadnezzar at least tried to take Daniel's advice. If he hadn't at least tried, then I don't know why the sentence wasn't carried out until a year later, or why the sentence came on so suddenly when it did 
as if God had been lying in wait for these words to come. God certainly gave the king a chance. But eventually, the haughtiness returned. And how could it not? When you're on the top of the world and everyone around you is telling you that you're God, it's hard to resist glorying in your own magnificence. But this probably didn't come about as suddenly as it seems in Daniel, after all a year had gone by. When you're told that something horrible is about to happen to you, it will set you on edge for the moment. You you may be more cautious. You may even change the way you think and the way you do things. But as one day after another goes by, and then months begin to pass, one after another, and that thing that you were so afraid of doesn't come to pass, you probably begin to think it's never going to happen. I was worried over nothing, you tell yourself. And each week, you let your guard down a little bit more. And pretty soon, you start doing things the way you were used to doing them before, because after all, that's the way you liked it, when you could do whatever you wanted. I think that's what was going on with the king during that year. And then after an entire year had gone by, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace, and he was struck by the magnificence of all wonders that he had wrought. And finally, he gave it voice. Finally, he spoke what he had been thinking for some time. Is this not magnificent Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power and for my glorious majesty? And before the words were even out of his mouth, the judgment came down and the sentence was carried out. The king was not changed bodily into a wild animal, but his mind was such that he was driven to living in the fields and eating grass like oxen. And the Bible says this happened over a period of seven times. Generally, this is taken to mean seven years. The word times is often used in relation to years. It wasn't used exclusively of years, though. There are examples of the word being used for months or for other periods of time. I think it's significant that Daniel himself, in his interpretation of the dream, didn't interpret the meaning of seven times. Everything else in the dream, he lays it out specifically what it means. But when it comes to the length of time, the voice in the dream said, let seven times pass over, and Daniel in his interpretation said, until seven times pass over him. He could easily have interpreted what seven times meant, just as he had interpreted what everything else in the dream meant, but he didn't. We need to pay attention to that fact. There has to be a reason for it. The expression seven times occurs here and elsewhere in Daniel, as well as in the book of Revelation. Both books also use the expression a time, times, and half a time, meaning three and a half, or half of the seven times. Again, this is almost always translated as seven years and three and a half years. But if God had intended for us to be that certain that that's what it means in every occasion, then wouldn't God have had Daniel translate seven times as seven years when he was giving the interpretation of the dream? Instead of sticking sticking with the less definite, more enigmatic expression seven times? Consider the fact that this expression, used many times in prophetic scripture and translated with such absolute certainty by so many interpreters, first occurs in this particular passage in which it is all about knocking someone down off his high horse and condemning him for his hubris. 
Could it be that the expression is never interpreted in the Bible because we're not supposed to even pretend to know how to define the time periods which are to come? The fact is, the Bible leaves it vague because it's supposed to be vague. It definitely means seven-something, but that something could mean different things at different times. Seven years, seven months, seven weeks, seven epochs, seven eons. Anyone that claims to know is overstepping the bounds of what God has revealed in Scripture and is perhaps in danger of the same kind of hubris condemned in this very chapter. The fact is, we don't know for certain exactly how long Nebuchadnezzar was inflicted with this condition, whether seven years or seven months or or seven-something else. What we do know for sure is that it was sufficiently long period of time, long enough that the lords and counselors of his kingdom had to search for him, long enough that the kingdom had to be held in proxy while the king was incapacitated, long enough for him to experience what it is to be exiled, disposed of, excluded from your former comfort and glory. He had oppressed his subjects, treating them as nothing but animals that could be used for his purpose and disposed of at his pleasure. Now, he would live as an animal himself. Long enough that Nebuchadnezzar would finally learn the lesson God had been trying to press upon him for decades. He thought that he owned the world. Now, he would experience firsthand that all the world himself included, was completely owned by God. Once that time period had passed, Nebuchadnezzar was returned to his former condition, and the kingdom was reestablished under his reign. And this is the last thing that we're told about Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Chapter 5 begins with a new king. And likewise, in Jeremiah 52 and 2 Kings 25, there's no description of the ending of Nebuchadnezzar's life or reign. He just kind of disappears from the scene. But not before giving us, in Daniel chapter 4, his testimony of how God Almighty had brought him low and taught him the truth. At the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar called the Lord the God of Daniel. At the end of chapter 3, he called him the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. By the end of chapter 4, he no longer refers to God as being tied to any other person or, or even to any other place or nation. The Most High God, he calls him. The King of Heaven. Perhaps the Bible is silent about Nebuchadnezzar from here on out because he's finally learned that God is everything and that he, even he, even the great Nebuchadnezzar, is nothing. What he leaves as his last testament is this proclamation he sends out to all the kingdom in praise of the King of heaven. For his sovereignty is an everlasting sovereignty, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing as he does what he wills with the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? For all his works are truth and his ways 
our justice, and he is able to bring low those who walk in pride. Amen. I invite you to turn with me now to the prayer of the great thanksgiving as we prepare for the sacrament of Holy Communion. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. You formed us in your image and breathed into us the breath of life. When we turned away and our love failed, your love remained steadfast. You delivered us from captivity, made covenant to be our sovereign God, and spoke to us through your prophets who looked for that day when justice shall roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. When nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy are you and blessed is your son, Jesus Christ. Your spirit anointed him to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to announce that the time had come when you would save your people. He healed the sick, fed the hungry, and ate with sinners. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, he took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples, and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and juice. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. I invite you now to take the bread, the body of Christ, broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. And likewise the juice, the cup of salvation poured out in the blood of Jesus Christ. Take and drink in remembrance of him. 
O Lord, we thank you for this holy mystery in which you have given yourself to us once again as we have experienced your grace and the impouring of your Holy Spirit. May we live according to that grace and to that spirit from this day forward. We pray in your precious and holy name. Amen. I invite you now to stand as you are able for our closing hymn, which is number 301, Jesus, Keep Me Near the Cross.
in the cross. That is where true glory is found. And so as you go from this place, may you stay always near the cross of Jesus. Go in the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.